0: hello and welcome to heart yoga radio we're having our usual walk through the hills today just got distracted because right almost above us is a very large bird of prey can't quite figure out what it is but it's a it's an amazing sight against the uh, the the very blue sky that we've got here today anyway (laughs) distraction over uh back to the topic So yesterday I was having a chat with my good friend Julia who also listens to these podcasts and she asks me, uh, how's Pete coping with (laughs) all the disasters which are happening uh, now and over the past couple of years? Um, So I took the microphone over to him and I I got Pete to to answer this question and he answered uh, dialectical Taoism. And uh, Julia said, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't mind hearing a podcast about that. So I thought that, uh, that's a good idea. So this is for you, Julia, and anyone else who might be interested in the answer to this question. So first of all, let's, uh, let's just probably break it down into two parts. So if we describe what uh, dialectical Taoism is, and then perhaps you could describe how you feel it's uh, helping you to cope with all the things that have been going on.
1: Hello Julia, thanks for your question, and I hope the the answer will be of interest to some other humans besides ourselves. First thing to say is that this question needs to be answered in a spirit of play and fun and humour. This but, is why
0: we're rolling on our backs and kicking the, kicking our legs in the air while we're talking <laughs> about this.
1: Sort of, yeah. <laughs> um, at the same time, I want to take Nietzsche's point to heart that, quote, there is nothing more serious than a child, a small child at play. He's referring to the imaginative play of children and how, how they get so absorbed and it becomes really, really serious. It's, I remember it, it well. Like life and death, that total absorption, you know. Yeah. And so there's a combination here of, of de- deep seriousness and, and big questions and humour and play and, and certain amount of fun. Certainly my reply was made in, in that spirit, you know, and you said, well, what, what, keeps, you, what keeps you afloat? Oh, dialectical, derisement. Slightly throw away a remark with a big smile, you know. <laughs> and, well, the, the answer had two parts in it the dialectic, dialectical, being the adjective deriving from the name dialectic, and Taoism. Which, if you've been listening to these podcasts, you should have some idea of our perhaps eccentric uh, and non sectarian take on it through the long series we've been doing for quite a while now on the Lao Sioux. On the Dao Du by Lao Tzu. So you could go back over the podcast and get yourself a bit of a sense of what we mean by that. Uh, dialectic. Now, it's one of those funny words. If you get ten philosophers in a room and you say... This,
0: this sounds like a joke already. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it is a joke. And you, and you say, uh, uh, what's dialectic then? And... Ten philosophers will give you like twenty-five replies, you know, <laughs> all, all different. But as a breed, philosophers really like the term. Now it's a great term. You find it in Plato, and I just think of some of, some some of the uh, the books that have been written in the say the twentieth century. Um, the Critique of Dialectical Reason, John Paul Sartre. Totally impenetrable. Very thick book. Um, Which I don't think he finished. Well, Hegel, of course, is uh, the, the big dialectician. And uh, Hegel's two main books, The Phenomenology and The the Logic, are uh, examples of Hegelian dialectic in, in full flight. And, of course, Marx took the Galian dialectic, fiddled it around a bit, uh, stood it on its head, as Mark said, and employed employed it uh, in, in his analysis of the economy of uh, the United Kingdom way back in the middle of the 19th century. So it's got this vast kind of uh, applicability, but still, he's still none the wiser. Well, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> So, I'm just going to go back to one of Plato's uses of the the term dialectic. And perhaps one of the best expositions is in a dialogue called The Sophist. And without going too deeply into that, that dialogue, which incidentally I've been meaning to do podcasts on for ages now. I've got extensive notes somewhere in my pile of notebooks. Um, Plato makes a distinction, or he has one of his characters make a distinction, between dialectic and sophistic, or sophistry we'd call it in modern times. And sophistry, Sophistic or sophistry is the attempt to persuade people. It's the use of tricks of oratory, Persuasion, propaganda, to get people to believe things and therefore to do things. So, this story of propaganda in which we are deeply interested, if you listen to our podcasts and the way propaganda sways populations, has been around a long time to the extent that Plato devotes quite a lot of space to try and uh, figure it out. Now, dialectic is thought to be a kind of a counter to sophistry or propaganda. And putting it very roughly, dialectic, uh, dialectic is characterised by a concern for truth, an attempt to arrive at some kind of a truth of the matter. Whereas sophistry is about persuading people of propositions or winning arguments particularly in law courts and in the democratic polity of Athens at the time that the Plato had been writing. And in fact there were a group of peripatetic teachers called sophists who went round teaching the young men of the the rich, of the the aristocrats of Athens, how to win arguments. Not how to arrive at the truth, how to win arguments. How to win in legal cases, how to persuade the Athenian public in their uh, democratic politics. So you've got this this distinction which is very, very pertinent to modern times, in our post-truth modern times. which distinguishes between propaganda, persuasion, rhetorical techniques on the one hand, and actually a concern for the truth, the facts of the matter, on the other. Now in Plato's hands, all of this uh, revolves uh, around an argument about the nature of nothing, or the nature of negation, or the nature of denial. Now, it gets very, sort of like, tricky, I have to say. (laughs) And whether the arguments that, that, that are given in the sophist for dialectic over and against sophistic or sophistry are good ones or not. It's very involved, very tricky. But it boils down to saying that if nothing... Has got certain properties that isn't purely like nothing and without properties. If nothing has no no kind of existence whatsoever, then the act of denial, denial of a proposition, it becomes impossible. And that means you can say anything you like with a clear conscience if you believe that, supposedly. And this is Plato's attack on the sophists, is that they treat nothing as though it had no properties, no character, no existence, and, and, and as though denial and therefore affirmation were, were just impossible. If somebody said the earth is flat, you had no means of denying it. So, uh, so the sophists, or the, the sophist, there is a sophist in the, in, the, in the dialogue, the sophist, and he's kind of basically claiming we can say what we like. You know, and we can also say fake news any time we like, and it should sound very familiar to you. Actually, you know, it's like our modern post-truth era, where you just, you know, where where you where, where we've got hordes of people claiming with absolute impunity that the earth is flat and so forth. You know, yeah. um, and when when we've got absolutely no trust in in the news whatsoever, I mean, for good reason, because they lie. But even the concept of what is a lie has disappeared. Now, when Trump put the nail in the coffin of a sort of ordinary, basic concept of truth, having said that, the dialectical uh, notion of truth is a bit bit different. And it relies, in Plato's hands, it relies on the ability to negate. And and, and that means that nothing has got some sort of, nothing has existence. It all kind of boils down to that in Plato's hands. Does nothing have some kind of existence or not? We say it's nothing, it's got no existence. But then that means that, means that you can't negate anything, which is the op- an operation of the nothing, you know? You can't, you can't negate anything. You can't, you can't say this isn't true, because you're invoking something that has no existence, i.e. nothing. So, so really, really tricky stuff. In the hands of Hegel, much lighter. Dialectic is, is about a kind of a, de- a dependence of opposites. It's a bit like saying something something can be and not be. And of course there, there is a Buddhist dialectic of course as well, you know, as Buddha said, everything is exactly how it appears to be. But nothing is as it appears to be. In Plato, that kind of synthesis of opposite, opposites is expressed as that nothing and something are dependent on each other. Well, if you want a nice artistic metaphor there, that the, that the figure and the ground, the foreground and the background, depend on each other. You can't, you can't say, oh, get, get a blank canvas and draw the, draw the outline of a person on it, for instance, and put a few marks on. You've got the background and the foreground. right? Figure and ground, we call that, you know? And that's inevitable, is that, is that kind of mutual dependent of basically opposite there, you know, you can't have one without the other. And that becomes like in Hegel's hands, the essence of dialectic. Even in Plato's hands, there's this, this notion of contradiction and of movement and of push and a pull. Which is why I say to people, always look for the contradictions. And of course in Marx, you know, it's the contradictions in capital. That act as a kind of a motive force for history. Of course, in Hegel, I thought that history itself was pro- was proceeding through a push and a pull between opposites, or between concepts in tension. Or and for Marx, it was between a class struggle. You know, between social classes in economic tension, struggling. Sometimes the working class getting a bit of an upper hand. Then the uh, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, pushing back and gaining a bit more of the power, and, and, and how that can kind of act as a kind of a motor of history. I think actually a little bit fanciful. That might be what's happening underneath, but it doesn't give us very much predictive power. So vast topic, vast topic, and what I want to just condense it down to for this podcast, is, is, just, is just to say it's about the mutual dependence of opposites, by opposites, but in process but it's also about process. Dialectics is always very processual. It's always about process. It's always about movement. It's not like the poles of a magnet that are just interacting with each other in a very kind of mathematically predictable way. It's like a push and a pull. And that kind of push and pull and well, the, the Hegel called it thesis antithesis, which through the push and the pull at some point, but synthesizing to a new entity, which would create its own, which would create, which would cre- create its own antithesis, which would then become a thesis, or, uh, which would then generate its own antithesis so that, it would, that it would go through a struggle and then eventually merge into a synthesis. Produce, that kind of that kind of story. And it's a story about history, really, in Hegel's sense. But what I take from that is just the it's tension, movement. Movement caused by tension, movement caused by contradiction, movement caused by conflict and fissure. And for myself, I use that as a, as a way of looking. What do I look for? I look for, the, I look for the conflicts, I look for the tensions, I look for the contradictions. Because that's where things get thrown into relief and that's where things start to understand. That's how we know where to observe. And that is a kind of a dialectical method. It's not quite Plato's, it's not quite Hegel's. Might be closer to Lao Tzu's because he has exactly the same method. He tells us, you know, that the, the yin and the yang are completely dependent on each other. And, um, the, well, the yin and the yang are like the bright side of a mountain, the sunlit side of a mountain and the shady side of a mountain in their very, very original early meanings. But you can't have one without the other. And you know, if one side's lit up, the other side's in shade. And it got elaborated into sort of male and female, and light and dark, and up and down. I don't. Know. But, but the whole point about it is that it's always in motion. One recedes, the other advances. Then, then that's reversed, and then the first one recedes, and, 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 the, and the second one advances. And you get this push and pull again. Sometimes it's contradiction. Sometimes it's war. Sometimes it's a, a a dispute of ideas sometimes it's a play of natural forces or political forces or economic forces but uh, in darwinism you get exactly the same uh, overall story now why Derist why Derish dialectic, well I think I've just, just described Deirist dialectic and you, you asked me, you said, well what's the benefit What's the benefit to somebody? It was a benefit to me.
0: Yeah. Well, just it'd be interesting to know just how it's actually benefiting you.
1: Yeah. Well, I kind of... I think that it operates the dialectic, which is, is a movement that focuses around tensions, contradictions, pushes and pulls. And it applies equally to the universe of our our evaluations and our estimations of events, ideas, theories, societies, value systems themselves. It's a kind of a... it's got an applicability across all fields of life. And... in the field of estimating what's going on in the world, and whether to approach it optimistically or pessimistically. I think we can apply it. We can look for the the pushes and the pulls, we can look for the contradictions, we can look for the tension. And the tension is between, in the midst of this apocalypse, are we optimistic or pessimistic about the future? What what is our personal orientation to what we find and what we find ourselves living through? What I do here is appeal to Chang Tzu's maybe story as a way of illustrating how we can apply the dialectic to our evaluations and our estimations of the, the situations we find ourselves in, situations which we we have to evaluate as, as to their their meaning and perhaps their likely outcomes as well.
0: Yeah, it's a really good story. I used to tell this to the, 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 the kids when I was uh, teaching yoga to them sometimes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it, it's, it, it just works well everywhere.
1: Yeah. Now we've, we've gone over this a number of times, I think.
0: Always worth going over it again. though, no, Just right for then. anyone who hasn't. I'll, I'll,
1: I'll have a go, see if I can come up with a version. <laughs> okay.
0: Once upon a time.
1: Once upon a time there was a farmer and he had a horse and one day the horse managed to escape from the paddock and disappear and the neighbours all came round and they all commiserated with the farmer and said oh what a terrible shame you've lost your horse how are you going to plow your field how are you going to take your crops to market and the farmer said oh yeah I've lost my horse but well Who knows, you know. And they were saying, no, no, it's terrible. Then the farmer kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, maybe. The next day, the horse came back and he brought with him five other horses, five wild horses, and led them into the paddock. And the farmer quickly shut the gate. So he'd now got six horses, got his original horse back, and five other horses, because they were wild mustangs of the mountain. And the neighbours came round and said, oh man, you saw so, you lucky bastard, you're lucky you are, you've won the lottery, you've got five horses, God, you're amazingly lucky, and the farmer shrugged his shoulders and said, well, maybe. <laughs> the following day, the farmer's son went into the paddock and decided he'd break in one of the Mustangs. And he got it in the corner, and he managed to he managed to climb on it, and he's clinging onto the mane. And the Mustang goes absolutely berserk, kicking its legs up. And the farmer's son falls off the horse, and then the, the, the stallion, the wild stallion, gives him a good kicking as well. Farmer gets in, shows the horse off, drags the son out, and his legs completely sort of mashed up. And he has to fetch the doctor to the sun and the the doctor's saying oh he's gonna be he's always gonna be crippled now with that leg. I'll do my best to sort of patch it up but it don't look very good. The neighbors all came round and they said, oh man, that's the worst piece of luck anybody's had round here for a long time. Absolutely terrible. And the farmer shrugged his shoulders and said, maybe. Anyway. The uh, the farmer's son. He did he did sort of hail up a bit. They put a splint on his leg and strapped it up and stuff. Well, he was always he was always always limping and he couldn't straighten his leg and he could kind of get by, but he was a bit mashed up really, and uh, it it had made him sort of disabled to a degree. And uh, anyway, this went on for a little while, and they the son still was nowhere near recovering and he wasn't going to recover. But one day the army came round. Remember, this is all in the time of the war in states. The army comes round, the Imperial Army, and they're just recruiting all the young men. They're not recruiting them, they're pressing them. Press gang, you know, uh, conscription. They've got to join the army. All the young men under 30, able-bodied, join the army. And they rounded up all the all the young men in the area, in the village. They come to our farmer's house and they say, have you got a son? He said, yeah, he's in there on the, on the bed, his leg's in a bit of a state. Anyway, the, uh, the conscripting officers, they went in and had a look at the, the son and said, oh God, he's no good. He's going to be no good in a fight, he's just going to be a liability and we'll have to feed him. And they said, we're not having this one, he's useless. And they went away and took all the young men from the village except the farmer's son, anyway the neighbors came round and they were wailing and said oh you're you're a lucky bastard again you know, they've taken all of our sons but they haven't taken your son. You're you're the luckiest bloke in the world, what an absolutely amazing piece of good luck. And the farmer shrugged his shoulders and said, maybe. So it's a way of, uh, of appraising stuff that, that relies, I suppose, on the fact, the fact that we don't have the complete ability to predict the future. We don't have foreknowledge of the future. Even with science and all the rest of it, there's such a lot that, that is in the hands of, you might say, fate. You know? And that we can appraise things in a dark mode or, or, or a light mode, as glass half full, glass half empty. Or well, we can just realise that everything's open all the time. That's what I call derish dialectic. It relies on a push and a pull. It, may, it actually makes you realise that your moods can fluctuate in the way that you appraise stuff, as well, in the way you evaluate things. And it's 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 something that's it's struck me in my life as being sort of strategically pretty damn useful for helping you to go through the world and through difficult times. It's not to say that stuff doesn't get difficult sometimes, of course it does, it's terribly difficult. It's the nature of human life, <laughs> you know, it's hard yeah. and suffering uh, rears its head uh, very frequently. And it's easy to get pessimistic, especially in times like this. But I think, well, who knows, you know. And opposites, well, opposites do depend on each other. They do bat off each other. They do push and pull with each other. They do transform into each other. And above all, everything changes. Flux movement is the nature of reality. And dialectics tries to work with that a little bit. And give you some purchase on it. So you're able, through dialectics, to get pictures of th- parts of the world. You can get a picture of the economy, you can get a picture of a culture, you can get a picture of somebody's character by understanding the pushes and the pulls, the contradictions, the yeses and the nos. And it's a good way of drawing your picture. And that's what we deal with in our understanding of the world. We have no choice about this. We have to attempt to understand the world, to live in it as human beings.
0: Otherwise but you can't, make, can't really make decisions, can you? You can't
1: do anything. You can't yeah. do anything. You can't decide when you can't make a decision. Because uh, like, sometimes it's sensible not to make a decision, but yeah. to leave it. Yeah. But you can't decide that. Yeah. You can't discern, is this a good place to do, to do that, to let it be? Or is this a good place to wade in? Is, there go- is this a good place to wait? Or is this a good place to spark the revolution? <laughs> you know? So, I think we can work with that. I think it's extremely helpful. On just a very practical level for all kinds of areas of life. Now, opposites, you know, opposites depend, just rambling a little bit around that theme. Now, we're in a time where the, 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 there's quite a lot of events going on which are pretty cat- cat- catastrophic. I mean, for us here in the UK, Brexit's looking to be pretty catastrophic on the economy and on employment and on people's standard of living and on their access to healthcare and all manner of things make for a reasonable civilised life. Covid's been a, a shitstorm with 130,000 dead and it looks as though that that particular virus, the Covid-19, in its variants is going to become endemic. Globally, they've got this attempt at some kind of cold war on China which is pretty dangerous.
0: Not to mention the climate change, Well. And Of
1: course, climate, you know, which is really, in fact, climate is only one part of an ec- of ecological catastrophe, looming and impending, uh, because it, it's all tied in with soil, the fertility of soil, the the viability of the oceans, which provide, of course, kind of fish, as well as controlling large swaths of the climate, as well as... Just sustaining the earth in many ways, all of those systems are in are in jeopardy at the moment. So you can just see catastrophe or impending catastrophe. You can just be a doom scroller. But uh, but the Devis would say that a crisis, which is what we've got, we've got we've got a very very multi-layered crisis. Perhaps the biggest crisis that the human race has ever faced, or set of crises, which are really all one crisis, you know. The crises are dialectically intertwined to form one big mega-crisis. But a crisis is also an opportunity. There's tons and tons of opportunity in the instability, in the collapsing of old structures, to build again, to build what is new, and to paraphrase W.B. Yeats, you know, know, the, the, the centre cannot hold, the world is falling apart, just to paraphrase him. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Of course, living through a similar time as himself, you know, the First World War and so forth. You just feel as though everything's disintegrating. But out of that there are these opportunities to rebuild the world. And those that build the world anew are gay. Their eyes smile. Their eyes are smiling because they, they know that they've got this opportunity to build. In other times you don't have the opportunity to build. The systems are too well entrenched, they're too fossilised. But here they are, they're shaking themselves loose. Economically, ecologically, culturally, socially and so forth. All these things are shaking themselves loose and that is the opportunity, that creates the space in which to build the, the new and the better. And better means more sustainable, more able to sustain life, more able to give... The people of, of, of the planet Earth a good life. So that's what it means to be a, a Deist dialectician. So it's it's a style of it's a style of analysing all manner of, all manner of things that come before us, including the things, the movements, the processes inside us are all, are all amenable to this approach. And it has particular ap- applicability to the way we appraise our situation in these apocalyptic times. And that's why I'm kind of I'm kind of all right somehow. <laughs> and uh, as my grandfather used to say, you'll be all right when you're better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh well, thank you everyone for coming on this nice walk with us today. I hope it was uh, it was interesting for you all. The sheep are fine, by the way. I know they were really moaning, but I think they're just a little bit hot. They're sitting in the shade looking slightly grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> so take care and we'll speak to you soon.
1: Make knowledge right again. Have a good apocalypse.